I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Ben Johnson. Ben is the CTO and co-founder of Obsidian Security. Prior to founding Obsidian, he co-founded Carbon Black and most recently served as the company's chief security strategist. As the company's original CTO, he led efforts to create powerful capabilities that helped define the next generation of endpoint security. Prior to Carbon Black, Ben was an NSA computer scientist and later worked as a cyber engineer in an advanced intrusion operations division for the intelligence community. Ben is active in the cybersecurity community, where he's a technical advisor to the U.S. FISA court and sits on boards of multiple security startups. Ben earned a bachelor's degree in computer science from the University of Chicago and a master's degree in computer science from John Hopkins University. In this episode, we discuss starting with the NSA, starting Carbon Black, focusing on the endpoint, identity management security, government compliance, why everyone is always in sales, picking your founder team, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Ben, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, and so, you know, we, we were just chatting before we, we hit record, uh, but as I said, you were, you were somebody that I've always been kind of following the industry for a while. You you have almost kind of an OG status now within the cybersecurity community. You've been doing it for, for an awful long time. If you can kind of take people through back to when you started, because it, from what from what I re- remember reading and even kind of cyber stalking on you, I mean, you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, before we even really even had a word for cybersecurity. Yeah, so uh, I'll try to not be long-winded here. It's always, uh, you know, you, you, you try you don't like necessarily talking about yourself, but then when you you, you do, you try to give like this whole history. Right. Um, so, uh, so actually, uh, in high school, I worked at an ISP. So, you know, I was fortunate that I wasn't working at McDonald's or something, right? I was, I was actually like already interested in computer science. I was already writing some code as a, as kind of a, a high school geek. And, uh, you know, the ISP world just started to open my eyes to risk and, and cyber threats. And as you just mentioned, it wasn't called cyber at all. Uh, but just this notion of like security is actually kind of a thing that we need to think about as everyone starts connecting and sharing data. Uh, and then I saw the movie Enemy of the State. Uh, literally, I saw the movie Enemy of the State. Uh, NSA was still no such agency. It wasn't really talked about. And then basically the next day, applied to uh, to NSA and worked there. Uh, you know, was fortunate enough to, to, to start working there. And then from 2000 to 2007, uh, was in the intelligence community. Some of the best times of my life. Uh, sometimes work I would have done for free and they were paying us for it. Uh, but it was awesome and, and just got to learn so much and work with such great people. From there, uh, ended up... Um, uh, working with with Mike Viscuso and some other people in uh, doing some incident response, and that led to Carbon Black, which was, hey, could we actually shift incident response away from digital forensics and this sort of after the fact, you know, copying hard drives mentality and more continuous recording, you know, flight recorder, black box kind of stuff, surveillance camera, uh, and then Carbon Black was an awesome journey. 
about seven years there uh, in, in, in uh, going from basically zero people to, uh, to 800 or so when I left, and now at Obsidian Security in, in Southern California trying to do it all over again. Gotcha. Now, I, I don't know if Enemy of the State was necessarily meant to be a training or a recruitment video for the NSA. I think you, you might have missed a few parts of that. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. it's, it's, it's cool. So, I mean, I had a similar kind of history. It's like, you know, I go back to like the movies and the books of the, the 80s and 90s on hacking. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I want to do that. <laughs> I didn't know it was actually going to be a thing someday. But yet here we yep. are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we all have those movies, right? Sneakers and, you know, Hackers and some of the other movies that just inspired us. But uh, yeah, no, it was just, you know, continuously kind of getting deeper and deeper into cyber and and seeing how the industry just exploded. And now, you know, here we are with, uh, you know, it's kind of the number one concern. I think even Warren Buffett said it's no, his number one concern is, is cybersecurity and he steers away from tech. So um, it's, it's a pretty wild world. You know? Yeah, and, and when, you know, I find it interesting too, you know, how people choose the path they're going to kind of go down when it comes to the areas of cybersecurity, you know, was kind of what, I guess, what was the, the aha moment or light bulb moment when it came to doing things like carbon black and on the endpoint, as opposed to perimeter security, which when you kind of really started doing carbon black was still such a focus, like, you know, firewalls, IDS, IPS, but you kind of went to the endpoint where everybody was saying, nah, AV's got that. Yeah, you know, uh, I think there was a couple drivers there. The first is, you know, in our time in the intelligence community, we were trained on how to, you know, test the defenses. And so, you know, a lot of offensive techniques. And so we said, okay, what do we need to build that would, you know, catch us in these, you know, uh, basically pen test or red team type situations. So that was one driver. The other driver was, uh, you know, being entrepreneurs, we went and asked customers like, where's their pain points and, and, and what's missing. And, you know, FireEye and some of the other companies that were really driving that whole kind of detonation, uh, evolution of every inbound email with an attachment is going to run in a sandbox and all that, that, that was exploding. Uh, but what we heard is, Hey, that's cool. But I don't know if it actually ran on the endpoint. Like, I don't know if the user actually uh, ran it or if it actually was opened or maybe it was, you know, submitted and it was the wrong service pack level or the wrong OS, right? So they didn't have that visibility around did things actually harm them or are they just reimaging boxes for the sake of it, right? And then similarly, just more and more attacks started happening and trying to understand root cause and scope people just had no idea really. So we, you know, we were really excited to, to kind of dive in and, and go into the endpoint world. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's hard because if you make a mistake, you blue screen a bunch of employees boxes and stuff like that. Right. So certainly there's a lot of scars there, but, um, yeah, no, it's fun. And, uh, trying to, you know, keep, keep the defenses as close to the person as possible through their, you know, their laptop or their, their computer. When you, when you started kind of, uh, you know, deploying product and getting really into the weeds on it, um, were you almost a little bit surprised too with the amount of activity you guys were able to record and see on the endpoints that maybe not even just surprising for you, but also for your client sponsors when you're putting this environment, it's almost akin to kind of putting on a black light in a hotel room. You might start seeing things you don't wish you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I still remember uh, some conversations where you meet with someone, they're deploying, you know, carbon black, and then you meet with them like a month later and you can tell they haven't slept since. Like <laughs> they're kind of like, yeah, I kind of, you know, I love it, but I kind of wish I didn't 
turn the lights on. Like, um, and yeah, it was giving people data and visibility they had never seen before. And especially with things like encryption and other, other aspects of, of the network world, maybe starting to get more challenging from like a network monitoring perspective, you needed to understand like what, you know, binaries, what processes are running, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, we certainly ran into situations where people, people were, kind of, you know, sad that they turned the lights on because it showed how bad of a problem there, there was. And I remember one, one large organization, uh, it was actually, uh, overseas, uh, where, uh, they installed us on just 30 laptops of the security team and found 300 pieces of known malware, not to mention the unknown stuff. Right. So just the fact that people weren't really looking at endpoints enough as a, you know, in, infection vector or attack vector, uh, I, th I think, you know, we're, we're proud that, you know, kind of the industry shifted and now endpoints are, are very, you know, central to cybersecurity. Yeah. And when you kind of look at it from uh, maybe blue team sock-ish type perspective, when you're getting this much data all of a sudden, how long does it normally take for most organizations to kind of try to normalize that to try to find, um, you know, known good versus bad? Yeah. So, you know, I think what typically happens with any kind of visibility tool is you already have your day-to-day, -day, you know, triage. You're already going through tickets or responding to calls or investigating some sort of uh, threat. And so now you have this new data source. So in that case, it was uh, it was endpoint data. But now you have this new data source that you can start to get better context and better understanding of what's transpired. So I think right away, teams start to, to use that kind of new information. And you were actually doing something similar in a different space with Obsidian where it's, there's a lot of visibility. But, um, you know, to your point to like normalizing and, and understanding what is normal, I, I think the sad state is that most environments are so messy that it's hard to say like this is quote unquote normal. It might be normal for this one person, but like, you know, you're hundred thousand employees, you're going to not really have a gold image kind of thing. So I think trying to understand where are the uh, risky apps, of course, where is any sort of malicious, you know, activity, that kind of thing. Um, but then really just trying to drive that cleanup. Uh, I think that tends to happen over the first couple months. I, I do think it takes a little while to get used to it. And then, you know, one thing we saw really explode, uh, really through like the carbon black community is, you know, the, the, the people that are users of the tech are sharing their different watch lists, you know, their different like patterns of compromise and that kind of thing with each other and saying, hey, if you want to detect this kind of attack, you know, use this. And of course, some of that's built in, but, you know, it's, you, you know, have this army of people working together to build detection rules, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that that's, it, it seems to be a little bit, you know, when we get into threat intelligence sharing and kind of, hey, you're seeing what I'm seeing, it, it becomes, uh, you know, that's where you get to see the anomalies, really, you know, that it's a frequency of least occurrence, but when you start seeing it occur across multiple uh, environments, then becomes alarming. How do you try to then uh, source back to these things for attribution? Was that something that customers should or should not care about? You know, um, if, if someone said to me, attribution is super important, I'm not going to argue with them. But I think in general, like almost no organization truly cares about attribution. Um, you know, really, the first question they're trying to answer is, am I being targeted 
or not? Like, is this an opportunistic attack that is going to hit all of my competition or just any random company my size or whatever, right? Geographic location. Um, or am, are they specifically after something that I have or trying to do damage to me? That's a question that I think everyone wants to answer, especially at the board level. Um, but beyond that, like, is it, you know, this country or this country or this, you know, APT group or that, like people can kind of geek out on that stuff, but it doesn't doesn't typically add too much to the equation. And there's always enough doubt that you're going to spend so much time trying to figure that out where the benefits are, you know, so minuscule in comparison that it's a, you know, it's, it's a negative ROI. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, right. I mean, it's, there's only so much time and resources that you have when you're dealing with an incident and chasing down those leads, you know, most organizations that I've, I've worked on the breach side with, their question is, what went out? Yeah, I know somebody got in. I know there was a compromise. What the hell went out seems to be the greater concern. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, everyone's different, but, you know, I think people have started to get a little bit better handle on on what they're concerned about and how they, you know, approach it or mitigate it, that kind of thing. But it's still hard. I mean, you know, cybersecurity metrics are still not really there. Like, everyone has slightly different metrics, and are they actually, you know, reflecting your state of maturity and things like that. I mean, I think that's still a huge uh, concern for most organizations. Yeah. And, and to that kind of point, you know, does it, are we, it almost feels like battle fatigue after a while, you know, we're, we're now several years into continuous kind of breaches being into the, you know, kind of headlines. Um, does this feel in a sense, you know, like a, I mean, how can small organizations and small enterprises that are, typically the victims of a lot of these large, you know, the more, I would say, frequent attacks. Uh, is it a battle we can win? You're starting with the simple questions, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Um, easy ones. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, uh, I think what I would say if you're a small business is, uh, is quite frankly, buy all new tech and use cloud apps. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, there are a lot of advancements in things like, you know, iPhones, iPads, uh, you know, Office 365, G Suite, uh, but a lot of it still comes down to how you configured it, right? There's a ton of attacks against things like Office 365, right? So um, if you're a smaller organization, can you can you at least move to newer tech where there's things like auto updates and you're not quite as, you know, on the hook for kind of the old school vulnerability management, you know, you have to kind of see what's coming out on patch Tuesday or whatever. So can you move to some of the newer devices just to like reduce the amount of work you have to do and have more built in security and same with some of these different apps or, or services where if you can at least enable MFA for your entire org and, you know, maybe some other stuff that kind of gets built in around, you know, analytics or other things that it's looking at, at activity. Um, I do think you can make a huge dent in, in your risk. Um, you know, unfortunately it still always comes down to people and th there's just a huge misunderstanding still of, you know, what's kind of risky behavior and what isn't. And if we could just get people to use, you know, two-step or multi-factor authentication and, password managers, if we could just do that, like it would be such an improvement, but we're still not there yet. But that also you know, kind of begs the question. I mean, if we look at cloud-based technologies, we move outside of traditional per perimeter and on-prem security uh, models, let's say, um, to cloud-based really becomes identity and access management, where the identity is we kind of all starting to say now, identity is a new perimeter. Uh, how does that shift the mentality for, like, say, a CISO or CIO to say, okay, well, now, you know, we spent 20 years beating our heads against the wall trying to secure firewalls, but oh, now we're now we're dealing with uh, identity as an issue. 
Uh, are you finding people are having trouble kind of coming to terms with that or is it making it actually easier for them? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's utterly exploded. I mean, you know, Obsidian, we're, we're focused on identity protection. So um, most of our conversations are just, just having nice chats with these different organizations where, you know, people are giving us feedback on what we're doing, but also just what are their pain points. And cloud has absolutely exploded access, right? This notion of, like I've started giving these uh, these these talks at conferences called uh, identity creep or, or things like that. But every time I give one of those talks, like, there's a huge line afterwards of people who want to talk about it because it's such a big problem for them, which is, hey, everyone in my organization now has some on-prem access. We just gave them all sorts of access to Dropbox and Salesforce and Office, and nothing's really like centralized. It's this fractured identity ecosystem or whatever. So um, it's a huge problem. And you know, I think I think the one thing that's really changing with cloud is defenders or the security programs really really grew up out of uh, defending assets, defending infrastructure, thinking about IP addresses, host names, endpoints, you know, that kind of stuff. But with all these cloud apps and these other things, you don't control potentially the user you know, device, the client device. You don't have any sort of backend anymore that you're managing. So the only thing you can focus on, and you basically just said this, is the access. Like who has access and is that the appropriate access? And so, yeah, I think that's that's a huge problem. And you're starting to see you know, some of these reports that come out of, of major you know, CIO or CISO projects for the year. And a lot of them have to do with just managing cloud posture and cloud access and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and particularly then when you, I think so many people kind of have in their mind, oh, great, we'll just cut over to the cloud. And it's actually more of a, a bit of a more of a migration, particularly when you're going from directory services of on-prem to cloud. It's just not a, it's not a simple switch. And I think uh, people are starting to realize it's going to take a lot more time to move over um, things like directory services, access control lists to the cloud, because it's, it's kind of a different beast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I think the very fundamental, uh, mistake a lot of organizations make is they think, Oh, we're going to the cloud. Okay. Amazon will handle security or Microsoft will handle security for me. It's like, no, like, you know, Amazon is very explicit on their site and they have a nice diagram where they say, we are responsible for security of the cloud. You're responsible for security in the cloud. Right. And Azure has the same similar thing. Google Cloud has similar things, et cetera, where, you know, you're still responsible to, to our conversation a couple of minutes ago around who, who are you giving access to in your employee population or what guests or whatever. The other thing is mistakes. Mistakes are so easy now to cause big harm. Like you click the wrong button. You just copied terabytes into a new S3 bucket, whereas before that would be really, really hard to like ship all this data somewhere, right? Because it would just take forever in your bandwidth or, you know, it was all stuck on your server at your headquarters. So now the fact that it's really easy to move large volumes of data around is a new set of challenges in addition to what we just talked about, which is this, you know, it, it, you, you might already have a hundred SaaS apps in your organization. <laughs> and like, how do you manage all that? Like that's, th those are some of the big problems that we see organizations uh, looking at. And, and that certainly kind of leads into some of the issues with with things, you know, not only just data, but access is now we're seeing so much uh, regulatory pressure, whether it be GDPR, different states about who had access to what and when almost seems to try to push that issue a little bit further. Or is that something still kind of on the back burner? Yeah, so uh, everyone is thinking about GDPR, CCPA, you know, California Protection uh, uh, Consumer Protection Act, things like that, where it's about uh, privacy and, and controlling information. Uh, the challenge is, I don't think it's really trickled down to employees, uh, or sorry, the engineers and the IT staff, uh, and really not even maybe to certain parts of leadership. People are thinking about it. But again, these things grew out of 
consumers and citizens and, and, and privacy around, you know, what are social media companies or some of these other people doing with my data? So how does that actually apply to employers uh, and, you know, kind of business and commercial side of the house? I think that's still a, a huge question. So yeah, people are thinking about it a lot, but I don't, I don't know that anyone really has like a plan of like exactly what this means for them as a, you know, as a cybersecurity team or whatever. And the other thing is things like GDPR do have carve outs where they say, look, if there's certain information needed for incident response or cybersecurity investigations or things like that, then there is more, uh, it, it is a bit more liberal in terms of how you can use this data. But I don't know that that's necessarily been defined in court or is, if there's like a really clear defined, like what does cybersecurity kind of data or monitoring mean? So yeah, it's going to be interesting going forward, but a lot of people are thinking about it. Yeah. And that, that it seems to be this um, kind of diametrically opposed kind of issues where, Hey, we have to monitor everybody for security. And then people on the regulatory side say, wait, you can't monitor people's activity. It's like, well, how else are we supposed to do security? <laughs> so it's almost, there's uh, kind of competing agendas there when it comes to some of the, the privacy regs versus cybersecurity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's security and privacy, it's compliance versus operational security. Like it's, it's, all of this is is luckily actually coming together where you have to you know have real security not just compliance or you have to think about privacy as well as security so i think it it is going to be really interesting but um you know it's still pretty early in terms of how it actually plays out for individual organizations other than the big guys like google and facebook who are already getting fines you know that kind of thing gotcha now some of this might even kind of dovetail into some of the work you're doing with uh, Department of Justice. I've kind of seen some information, but you know, what can you talk about with what you do uh, on that side of the house? Yeah. So, um, uh, well, I'll be I'll be frank and say there's not a whole lot I can talk about. But what <laughs> I, I, what, I can say, <laughs> what I can say is, um, you know, I miss the national security mission. So yes, at Carbon Black and yes, at Obsidian, we we hope to help federal agencies and organizations with their cyber defense through, you know, the products or, you know, whatever that we offer. Um, so, so I love that aspect, but I, I did miss the national security side of the house of, you know, truly, you know, being involved in that. And so, um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to, to communicate with some of the members, uh, of, of DOJ and, and they, they essentially liked my profile or we had good interactions. And so basically I'm an advisor to them and I try to help um, you know, the FISA court as a, as an amicus, um, which basically means like helping them just understand, or if they need extra, extra interpretation or extra sort of expert witness on certain things, uh, to, uh, you know, to provide, provide that insight and, and help, uh, people who are, um, hardcore experts at legal to maybe understand some more tech. Right. And, uh, if you think about it, that's, that's kind of a lot of our jobs in cyber is helping people that maybe are, are not in the tech world or in the cyber world understand, uh, you know, what, what technology means or what relevant, uh, things mean. So it's, it's a similar type of thing where it's, it's, I'm, I'm almost like an interpreter for, you know, geeks speak. Totally makes sense. And you know, what a big thing, too. I've seen you know, when you kind of mentioned dealing with the legal side or even dealing with the board or C-suite, it's always that, yeah, that's great that there's all tech. Just give me the one page. Give me the brief. Like what what matters? And I find that technical people always want to lead with the 20-year backstory of how we got here and in, in, in the end of the day, they kind of lose their audience. And it seems to me, and the one thing that I've tried to extract a lot from the podcast, say, wow, you know, the common theme seems to be communication, how we communicate the issues to the intended audience. 
Yeah, and you know, um, uh, going back, so um, <laughs> because I, I don't already have enough to do, um, a couple years ago I said, you know, I'd kind of like to teach. So I went to University of Chicago where I where I was an undergrad student, and I said, hey, I'd love to teach an entrepreneurship class. And so we put together a uh, master's uh, level computer science class called uh, Entrepreneurship and Technology. And basically, I built this whole whole class and, and curriculum, and taught it just for a couple years. But um, uh, where students show up day one, and by the tenth week, it's like Shark Tank, like pitching their their brand new venture, their MVP, their you know results, their their ask for funding, uh, and throughout that, you know, we would do case studies on different companies, and you know, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, whatever. But the whole point is. I would say to them, well, you know, you, you guys are always selling. You're always selling. Even if you're going to stay hardcore a software engineer, you're always selling. Now, you could change the word selling to be uh, like communicating or educating, right? But to your point around the board and things like that, like there's so much of what we do, even as super technical people, that you're going to be much more successful and more effective in your project, your company, whatever, if you can communicate it in more business terms, right? And some of the CISOs that I, I, I really admire have told me their approach is put everything into the words economic impact. Like, what's the economic impact of this? What's the economic impact of this? Oh, you want me to defend $300 billion of intellectual property, but you're only going to let me have like one person? Like, that's not a very good ratio, right? So like, just trying to put it into terms like that. And, and even sometimes risk gets confusing, right? So if you can put it into whatever business terms make sense. But yeah, I think in general, I'm starting to ramble here. <laughs> in general, just 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 learning how to uh, communicate whether it's a, a software project and what what does the team get from this you know open source library and and can you sell your idea your vision on that uh, is it selling the vision of your company to get fundraising is it selling your product is it selling yourself and you should be you know believed or, or you know be given this opportunity right like I think I think that's one thing especially on the super technical side people hear the word sales or selling and they immediately think of you know just that super outgoing salesperson who loves, you know, golfing or something right? like that sort of bad end of the stereotypes. And they don't realize that we all have to learn how to communicate and convince people that, you know, we know what we're talking about, or we have a good idea, you know, that kind of thing. So anyways, yeah, a lot of what I do, whether it's for Obsidian or for DOJ or for some of the places I'm an advisor to, it's just trying to figure out like how to communicate uh, ideas, validate things, you know, ask the right questions and, and, and really just do it in a way that's easy for the person at the end to, uh, to understand and to, you know, participate in. You know, what, what are some of those types of questions when you're, I mean, again, it's going to be audience dependent, but what are the types of things that, you know, you, you probably find yourself asking more, most frequently with people, um, you know, the kind of cliched one is, you know, what keeps you up at night, but you know, what are some of the other types of questions that, you know, you kind of drive to try to find, Oh, okay, here's point A that you need to get point B. How are we going to get there? Yeah. So I think, I think a lot of times there, there is the keep you up at night, but also like where, you know, can, where can you break down the problem into smaller problems? Right. So one of the things that was really challenging at, at carbon black, and, and I'll be honest, it was frustrating when I would run into this is, People, let's say you're a 100,000 employee organization, and at that size, you're going to have all sorts of operating systems, right? And so 
let's say we could only defend 90,000 of them because you had a thousand Solaris boxes and a thousand of some, you know, custom Linux kernel and all this other stuff. Right. And so they'd be like, well, you can only defend 90% of our uh, endpoints. So uh, it's not good enough. It's like, okay, well, first of all, is there anyone on the planet that can defend a hundred percent? But even so, like, can you carve up things into more, you know, kind of bite-sized or, 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 you know, easier to manage chunks that are also probably better to be done in smaller chunks because of the context or the business unit or the geographic location. And I think that goes across all aspects of security, which is like, where can you get those quick wins? Like, can you just enable MFA and have some discussions with your employees about what that means? Or can you just stop people from doing X, Y, and Z because it's flooding your logs with like Spotify or something? <laughs> like, can you do these different things? I think that's a lot of it. The other thing is um, when you talk to an organization, most of the time the security team is really excited. They want some new tech. They want some help. But then and they need help convincing CFO or legal or IT or procurement or the business unit or whomever. So a lot of times it's you have to go into it as a collaboration. It's like, look, I'm going to help you make your career. Like, I believe in my tech. Use my tech to, like, further your career, to 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 lower your defense or lower your risk, improve your defenses, et cetera. Um, so let's work together on this versus a lot of times people feel like it's this adversarial relationship of, you know, the buyer and the seller when really you're both trying to solve the same problem. You're just, you know, have different roles to play. So I think those are some things in terms of the specific questions. A lot of times too, it's, you know, what should I be thinking about and how do other companies solve this problem? And who should I go talk to just to like, you know, learn from and things like that. Like a lot of times it really just comes down to learning and, and communication. And so if I can help facilitate, oh, I just heard this great conversation the other day from this company. Let me see if they'd be willing to talk to you. Like that's how we get better is sharing the lessons learned, not just to the earlier question, your your threat intel comments. Like, yeah, sure, send some, you know, indicators of compromise, some IP addresses, host names, accounts that are compromised, whatever. But like share how you built your tech stack or share how you built your program or how you encourage better uh, cultural security awareness. Like those are the things where if we share those, it might be a two hour conversation, but you spent months learning that. So now in two hours, you've just helped someone with months of effort, right? So anyways, uh, I'm rambling, but these are all the things that, you know, I kind of run into all the time and most of it comes back to, to learning and how do we, you know, scale ourselves kind of thing. Yeah. There's a, I think the, uh, one of the overriding themes about being in cybersecurity is your adaptability. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing I used to work with with quite a bit of forensic accountants. And hey, tax laws change every couple of years, and we're dealing with new threats and new changes every day. Um, so how how do you, as somebody who's got a lot on their plate, but you know, also encourage others to kind of stay in touch with all the different types of things that are coming at them? Uh, I wake up every day at five and hit the ground running. And I read a ton. Uh, having said that, you still can't keep up with everything. So you have to pick your battles, right? And uh, lean on, on, on good people to uh, you know, own certain aspects of, uh, of not just operationalizing security or you know, doing day-to-day -day defenses or, or building the tech if you're a vendor. But um, you, know, you need kind of a team effort to, uh, to sort of keep up just with all the news. And then you know, there's th I think one thing that's pretty positive is there's a lot of these bite-sized newsletters that you can subscribe to that are most often free, where every morning you're getting just like kind of snippets of, of, of headlines and things like that. At nothing else, if, if you do nothing else and you just read that, that takes like two minutes and you at least have an idea of the big stories or the latest you know, releases in a certain 
uh, Magic Quadrant or things like that. So I think it's a combination of those Google alerts on certain keywords, you know, things like that. But overall, it's just, you know, making sure you have this continuous learning mindset and then trying to find the time to, to, to do it, you know, cut out, <laughs> cut out TV or at least reduce TV. If you're on an airplane, don't just sleep or watch Netflix, like read some papers or, you know, pick up a book that's related to, to, to tech or to startups or whatever. Like that's the kind of stuff I do. And I encourage everyone else to do it. Gotcha. Now, now if you had to kind of use Ben's crystal ball to start looking towards the future, you know, you see patterns over many, many years. If you had to kind of start to predict some of the, I would say new, maybe new and emerging threats or things that people have to think, think forward on. And it's not just the, Hey, what's happening in 2019, but you know, real threats that could happen from not only this year, but, but coming, what, where are some of the places that people should start steering their mindset based on what you've seen in the past and kind of know now? Yeah. Um, I I mean, I think, I, I think just as technology, uh, sort of uh, refreshes itself, right? Like, you know, big companies go through buying cycles and they're buying new equipment or, you know, just, just sort of evolving. Like the, the one positive thing is most devices have more security built in, right? Like, I mean, the iPhone's pretty awesome from a security perspective, right? And, you know, maybe not perfect, but it's, it's way better than phones a few years ago. And same, same with some of the laptops and things like that that, like just stuff's getting more secure by default. Um, having said that, things like IoT are still terrible when it comes to security. So we have to be very careful about throwing all these sensors all over the place that are huge security threats. So I don't think that's anything new, but like that's continuing to explode. I think the other thing is, we touched on it as well, is um, one thing that's really, really challenging for security teams is when you used to buy tech, when you used to procure stuff, it would be this cartload of Dell servers showing up on the dock that IT would then unload and like install. And it was pretty hard for like your surface area to increase without IT knowing about it, right? Um, Now it's like the head of sales just goes and buys Salesforce and gives everyone in sales an account or the head of HR just implements Workday or whatever it is. But, you know, marketing is buying all sorts of stuff to try to get insights into to, to their customers, right? This is so quickly increasing your surface area and so quickly giving accounts and access to members of your team who may not be very technical or just may, you know, certainly probably not in the security team at least. Um, and yet now you're trying to figure out how you defend that and it, and, you know, continuing to just understand how can you wrap your hands around, uh, it might be somewhat sanctioned applications, not just just talking about shadow IT, but somewhat sanctioned, but it's going from a business unit or it's coming from a business unit rather than going through like an IT procurement process. So it's a bunch of that stuff that's really hard for the IT and security teams to keep up with. And then as we mentioned before, you click the wrong button and you just copied like a whole database or shared a huge bucket with the world with thousands and thousands or millions of records or whatever. So I think those are some things that are just continue going to continue to be a challenge for a while. In terms of the adversarial threat, more and more companies or sorry, more and more countries are realizing that the internet basically puts them on a level playing field with the US, right? They're not going to build the, the F-16s and the kinetic warfare, you know, capabilities that the, you know, sort of top nations have, but they can do a lot through the internet, through cyber. And so I think that's only going to increase, especially in kind of second and third world nations in terms of trying to build some capabilities. You know, I think that, 
I think the one benefit is around um, technical exploitation is getting harder. So then again, it comes back to things like accounts and you know credential compromise, phishing, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it, it seems to me that that kind of trend that I'm picking up on what you said and what I'm seeing too is a lot of this then comes down to identity access management and applications because so many people in organizations say, well, I'm not going to open up a change management or help desk ticket. I, I just need, yeah, Salesforce or some SaaS-based application. And you're like, that's another thing to manage. That has another cost. There's some, you know, there's some carry cost that goes with that. And people just think, oh, but it's so easy. Look at their website. It just says sign up in two minutes. And people don't appreciate that that becomes a strain for IT and security. Yeah. And, you know, I think, so I think that comes back to the communication, the selling, the cultural aspect of, look, like you can sign up whatever you want, but we have to have a little bit of a review first of what's, what's, you know, kind of the vendor management process. What's their security? Are there hooks where we can grab logs or, you know, integrate it with our authentication provider or whatever. So, um, you know, I think, I think there's opportunity there, but it's, it really comes back to making sure people follow some sort of process and don't just click the button and say, you know, yeah, free 30 day trial and you, you don't even need a credit card. And, you know, I mean, it's just so easy to sign up for stuff, making sure that uh, security is kept in the loop. So kind of turning back to some of the things you said before about, you know, obviously starting a company like Carbon Black, starting with Obsidian, you know, you've, you've kind of had this entrepreneurial feel to you. How, I guess, what was the cha- What was the moment that made you kind of choose going down that path instead of saying, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be more of a, you know, kind of individual contributor role or do some, what made you want to kind of build companies? Yeah. So I think my entrepreneurial drive is, is super high now. Um, I think at carbon black, I was, you know, at the beginning, um, me and, and some of the early players there, we were, we were, we were all willing to take risks, right? Like the fortunate thing is we all have skill sets where we're completely employable. So, you know, I told my wife, I'm like, look, if, if this doesn't work out, I can go get some crappy job and easily pay the bills tomorrow. Right. Like, um, so like, let's just take a shot here. And, you know, so I think some of it was the luxury of having the right skill sets. That's in a very hot area. Um, but secondly, it was just kind of like, Hey, like we built a lot of cool tools, uh, in the, in the intelligence community, but it was always part of a larger organization or part of a big contract or whatever. So can we do this on our own? And we really, early days of CB, we had no idea like kind of what we were doing from like a selling or marketing perspective. I mean, we were security geeks and and software engineers and stuff, right? So, um, you know, I think think the fun part was it was always new. It was always pushing us to our limits. We are always out of our comfort zone, which is really where you start to really grow, right? Um, And then, you know, you just sort of kind of took everything in stride. And I mean, it's a roller coaster, right? One minute you think you're going to be massive and the next you think you're going out of business, like literally within like an hour, uh, you could have both ends of the spectrum in terms of emotions. Um, and then, you know, people have asked me about obsidian and they're like, well, why are you, why are you trying to do it again? Like it's, it's a lot of work. And it's like, well, yeah, but a, I love it. And B it's kind of like having multiple children, right? Like y- your second kid is new and different than your first kid. And yeah, you've learned so much that now your second child, you uh, really know what you're getting into, but it's still going to be really hard, right? You're still going to have sleepless nights or, you know, illnesses or whatever. And so, but you get to experience a whole new set of, you know, memories and experiences and grow in in a different way. And so Obsidian's kind of like that, where it's like, yeah, we're taking all the lessons learned from, from Carmen Black or from, you know, Glenn and Matt came from Silence. We're taking all those lessons learned as well as, you know, lessons from other companies that people are now bringing to, to us as our teammates. Um, 
and trying to do it again. But yeah, from, from the carbon black days, it was mostly just like, Hey, we think we can do something cool. Let's go try to do it. We were less concerned with trying to build some massive company or anything like that. It was more just, Hey, let's solve some problems and build a product that we would want to use. And then, you know, kind of the rest of it luckily took care of itself. Was there a particular moment in that growth when you said, Oh man, we're really on to something. Like, was there some moment, either something you guys got notoriety for, or, or kind of, was it a big client? What, what was the moment that was kind of that tipping point? Well, so, uh, so early on, we, we thought we were onto something and we were in the, the DC area. So there's a lot of hardcore security people. And, and when some of the most hardcore people like, like Harlan Carvey, uh, who wrote the, uh, some of the like windows forensics books and things like that saying, yeah, you guys are going to change, change the game. If you keep going down this path, yeah. uh, that was amazing validation. Uh, and then we started getting interest from, from really significant, uh, corporations and organizations. Uh, and then we actually merged with a company called bit nine, you know, they were, they were, their claim to fame was, um, uh, application whitelisting. whitelisting yeah. uh, and for a while we were actually bit nine plus, plus carbon black. And then we eventually just became carbon black. But when we merged with them, they were like 180 people and we were only 20. So, so, you know, it's it a pretty bit different size and, but they had more of an established sales force. And I mean, we're, we're all one team. I should just say we, but right. Like when we merged, um, you know, there was this ex existing sales force. So we were able to go out and talk to amazing companies right away. And I basically, once we joined, I hit the road for like four years, nonstop, like a hundred flights a year. And, uh, and just went from, you know, region to region, country to country, whatever. Um, and the cool thing is, um, pretty quickly as we got more exposure, you could see that there was this huge need for EDR for, you know, continuous recording on the endpoints. And so that was really where it just started to take off, right? Like you get to talk to some of the coolest companies out there and they say, yeah, there's, there's huge value in this data. And, um, you know, and then you start getting some international presence and, and federal presence and things like that. So there wasn't like a specific moment, but there was certainly a few things that were like, okay, yeah, this is this is going to be massive. Are there, you know, if you kind of think back to and again, kind of thread intel and learning from other people, are there certain things you wish you maybe had done differently? Not necessarily a mistake. I always say mistakes are you know, things you kind of learn or grow from. But there are things that, you know, you say, wow, you know, I kind of stepped on a landmine there. I have to avoid that. Are there things that you would recommend other people as they embark on this entrepreneurship journey to avoid or be careful of? How much time you got? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, I think the number one thing is, uh, and this might be sounding generic, but the number one thing is is look at yourself first, and can you basically be on a roller coaster all day long? <laughs> you know, like it's it's not like okay, there's everything's great most of the time, and once in a while you're on a roller coaster. It's like no, it's pretty much a roller coaster all the time. The second thing related to that is people. Like, are you surrounding yourself with people where basically you're going to be in in you know? And I'm not trying to trivialize combat. I've I've never, I don't think, been shot at stuff like that. But um, you know, are are the people with you? can you kind of go to war and battle together? Right. And, and there's going to be some hard times. You're going to be yelling at each other. You're going to be, uh, super happy together. You know, assuming things go well, you're going to be really sad or, or, you know, frustrated, whatever it is. Can you make it through that? Like, you know, a lot of the literature from Silicon Valley says you have to find your soulmates for startups. Right. But it's basically like, can you have each other's back and, you know, know that you can do some great stuff together. And the third thing is, then continuing to to think about all the people that might be able to help you and how do you best engage with them, whether it's a customer giving you feedback before you have a product, whether it's someone joining your advisory board, whether it's the investors and things like that. Um, 
can you can you just continue to surround yourself with good people, even if they're only sort of part time or, or in little fragments helping you? And another thing is, you know, a lot of times what happens with hardcore technical people is they have this weird vision, and I, and I get it, I guess they have this weird vision of like VCs and investors as being these like all they care about is profit money and like they're going to like take the company away from you and you know crap like that and i, I kind of get why people think that way but it's not true like there's a lot of great investors we've had great investors both at carmlack and at obsidian who are really supportive and they're trying to help however they can and if you want to grow really fast they'll most likely be very supportive of that and if you want to grow a little bit more measured usually there's a lot of support there too right so there's some of those things and then on the product side just figure out how fast you can iterate and all the feedback you can get. Did you put the instrumentation to understand where people are using your product, how they're clicking? Are they logging in a lot? Are they never logging in? And the final thing is, and this is a huge uh, gap in knowledge. When you're selling a product to someone, the financial cost is only a small percentage of the actual cost. So what I mean by that is even if you want to give someone a product for free, they have to spend time convincing procurement. They have to go through risk analysis. They have to figure out how much does this cost to learn and training and administration? How do I deploy it? Do I have to get hardware? So like a lot of times when I talk to, to earlier entrepreneurs, they're only considering their license cost or their product cost, and they're not really considering all the other stuff that has to happen, most of which is time to get this new solution into the environment, right? And so really thinking about what's the total cost and all the friction and all the pain that the buyer has to go through to utilize your product, I think if you think about that much more holistically early, you're going to be much more successful. Yeah, and to that last point, that's like the one uh, one thing I wish that was talked about more on the show floor at RSA is what's the continued cost of this product? Um, I can't tell you how many organizations and infrastructures I've gone into where it's like, what is this and why is it here? It's like, oh, we bought it. We got it at a really good deal. You know, salesperson was meeting in a quarter and gave us a 50% discount, something to get it in. And then all of a sudden, there's nobody there to help implement it. And it actually then becomes a very negative thing. So it could be a really good product, then starts getting a bad reputation amongst, you know, CIOs, CISOs, directors of IT, because they're like, oh, yeah, you know, it might be a good product, but I can't use it. And I, I see that as a is a common mistake that maybe a lot of product companies make. Yeah, and and I I mean exactly, and I'd I'd love to add just one other thing, which is you know one thing I see a lot out of the Intel community is um, like the you know the DC area or whatever is there's a lot of companies out there that need cybersecurity help, and 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 I don't mean to just pick on on the DC area like the other. So there's a couple challenges. The first is a lot of companies that get funded, like you're, you're expected to just go sell to the fortune 100 and the fortune 100 is going to have very different problems from like Midwest medium sized company or whatever, right. Or international based in, you know, Dubai type company, whatever. Um, but you're expected to grow where you need to, in order to grow, you have to be able to handle all those companies. Uh, and similarly, uh, in the DC area, not everyone is, you know, three letter agency or, you know, hardcore kind of DOD type mentality. And so can, are you, are you focusing on a product or a solution that can be used by maybe that um, hospital that just has like, you know, a CIO and a couple IT staff or whatever, or, you know, that big manufacturing company, but they really haven't invested in a cybersecurity team or things like that. So it's really, you know, again, understanding, you know, 
is the sort of little bubble I'm in, is that actually kind of indicative of everyone I'm talking to? Or is this very specific to like, you know, San Francisco or DC or, you know, some of these cities where, you know, maybe the tech proficiency is a bit higher? Gotcha. Now, with uh, you, you did mention uh, about you know kind of entrepreneurial books and obviously doing an entrepreneurial class. I, aside from caring for your gerbil, which my eight year old daughter snuck into my business books because she thought it was funny. Um, you know, I have a bookshelf here in my office of all the business books that that I kind of look at as for entrepreneurship. Are there ones that kind of float to the you know kind of top of the pile for you that that you would either recommend or give to people and say you got to read this book. Oh, absolutely. So I actually have a, a book list on, uh, on medium. Uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm at Chicago band both on Twitter, but I think on, on, on medium as well. Uh, but, uh, essentialism is my favorite book. How to focus on the, uh, vital few versus the trivial many. So basically we all do so much crap all day. There's actually only a few things that matter. Can you reduce all the small things and just focus on what matters? So essentialism, favorite book. Uh, second favorite book is Extreme Ownership. It's by two Navy SEALs where they try to tie leadership lessons from some pretty hardcore fights in Iraq back to like business world. Like how would you deal with this uh, situation from a you know employee perspective or a, a sales opportunity or whatever? So Extreme Ownership. Third is Team of Teams. Uh, General McChrystal talked about how uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was really kicking our butt, even with our massive military and special operations and all those other people, um, and how they had to change how they communicated and how they operated to be much more fluid and much faster in, her, in terms of how they iterate and respond. So that's really cool. Um, I could keep going. You know, the book Power. Powerful by Patty McCord, who is the chief people officer at, at Netflix. It's just kind of cool to see how Netflix has a really good culture. Um, and beyond that, you know, there's Radical Candor uh, by, um, uh, I think, Kim Smith, or I, I might be, and, uh, you know, just, just having more frequent conversations uh, versus like waiting till the annual review to address some problem that you should have addressed 11 months ago with a person. And, you know, related to that, one of my favorite quotes is, um, a lot of rudder far from the shore is much better than a ton of rudder at the shore, something like that. It's like a Navy saying, um, it came out of another book called Turn the Ship Around. Um, but the whole point is like just all these micro course corrections are going to optimize everything versus like waiting till like it's a huge problem and then you fix it or try to fix it, right? So anyways, as you can probably tell, I could go on and on about books, but essentialism, extreme ownership, team of teams, those would be my top three. Yeah, no, and I, I love the uh, the bias confirmation for me on, on essentialism. That's the one that's the most prominent one on my bookshelf and the one I probably try to get as many people to read. And I've actually written a couple things on like LinkedIn about how it, how it relates to security because it is that, oh my God, I got a million things to do. It's like, okay, focus on the things that matter. And, and really just, it it relates very well to cybersecurity. At least I found in, in, in my review of it. Yeah, actually, we should we should probably do some joint thing on that. I I, pr I created a presentation called Cyber Essentialism, and I essentially gave that all around the world, and it was always very well received. And it's basically like, look, here's a bunch of stuff you could do. Why don't you start with like these few items? This is how I would do it, and it was always like very well received. So yeah, the whole notion of like there's a million things you could do as a defender walking in the door, looking at all these logs and all these alerts and things. Like, what do you actually do that matters? Yeah. Well, Ben, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. You, you mentioned a couple places that people can find you online. What are uh, where, where can people find you? Why don't we do the, the, the list? I'll be sure to put all in the show notes, but where, where can people hunt you down? So, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Uh, Benjamin Johnson 80, I think, is my sort of uh, trailing end of the URI uh, at Chicago Ben 
on Twitter. Uh, Obsidian is at Obsidian Sec, S-E-C, uh, on, on Twitter. And we also have LinkedIn presence and, uh, you know, Ben at ObsidianSecurity.com as well. Great, Ben. Well, I appreciate the time again, and I'll be sure to put that all in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.